Welcome to the Optimize Your Capacity podcast. Our goal is to help individuals as well as health and fitness professionals enhance their capacity and reach their untapped potential. We aim to have the listener leave with practical advice they can apply today. All right, so today we're going to be sitting down with Zach Couples talking about the unsexy side of PT, and by that I mean the things that often don't get discussed and put on social media, taught in PT school, even discussed among clinicians, but play a huge role in the wellness and performance of people. Uh, You know, some of that includes content such as airway and breathing, upper cervical cranial positioning, which is obviously important for breathing, sleeping, swallowing, snoring, CPAP machine, and so much more. We talk about posture, what is it, how do we define it, how do we see its role in performance and movement. We talk about sleep, which is a somewhat popular thing to talk about, but a little unconventional way of approaching sleep and how to attest and uh, objectify or track sleeping. Um, but overall, interesting discussion. You know, Zach's background is diverse. He graduated out of PT school in 2011, got his orthopedic certification, got his strength and conditioning certific- certification. He's done a whole lot of different lines of training, Postural Restoration Institute. He had uh, Bill Hartman out of IFAST be one of his big mentors. SFMA, dry needling, precision nutrition, certified speed and agility coach. He was the PT for the Memphis Grizzlies. He's got a lot of unique career experiences. Um, But I just really like the way he wraps his brain around complex tasks. And even I think he says it in in the podcast is human movement, breaking down human movement, the matrix of human movement is complex. But those that are skilled and talented have a way of making complex processes simple. And if you can do that and have that ability to do that, one, you can educate it to patients, but then you can grasp that concept so much better. And that's why at the beginning of his PT career, he did a lot of uh, summaries, recaps of courses and books he read because he said himself that the idea was he wanted to try to do his best to make these overarching big principles, complex topics simple. And if he can put that on on paper, one, it can help other people learn, but it's also going to help him learn. And I really like that way that he kind of described his thought process and how he views different principles. Um, so, yeah, hope you enjoy. Again, I think it's some interesting stuff that maybe you don't hear on some other podcasts, but also really important. Um, at the end of the podcast, Zach will talk about ways to contact him. He's got a lot of great contact uh, sorry, a lot of great content out there. One quick way is just going to zackcouples.com. But give a listen, follow along, and as always, let me know what you think and let us know what you think. All right, enjoy. All right, Zach, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, kind of excited to pick your brain on a bunch of different things. I know I've followed some of the stuff you've been doing for a few years and yeah, just like your approach. And one thing I want to really discuss today with you is kind of the non-traditional topics of rehab and PT. Uh, a lot of the press these days is on whatever, uh, recovery modality, uh, specific manual therapy technique or exercise. And I want to kind of get away from that stuff and talk sleeping, posture, pelvic 
all things that don't get as much press but are incredibly important. But before we get into that, how'd you how'd you get to where you're at, where are you at right now? Give us a little rundown of, of yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's been an, an interesting journey. Uh, I uh, I won't I won't get too detailed, but I'd say like the big thing that got me down on this trajectory um, was interning with Bill Hartman out of IFAST. Yeah. He's um, definitely a pioneer in the field, still still in this day, and just exposed me to what PT could be, which was much beyond what we learned in school, and that really got me motivated to just try to learn as many different things as we can. Um, and then I was I was finding that a lot of my clients who I was working with had other problems besides movement-related things. No one, no one is sleeping, especially the ones in persistent pain. No one is sleeping. Um, most of them, especially at the last clinic I worked with, don't eat vegetables. Yeah. Um, it's it just like – and it inspired me to, to think – about what we do for people as a, it needs to be a much more all-encompassing approach, I think, to really be successful. And that led me to really diversifying what my learning is, out, not just within the physical therapy field, but outside of that. And, and that's why I get excited about things like sleep and, and things like that. But all that being said, this stuff can get very complex. And I'm not the smartest guy out there by any means. And, and that's really the reason why I started blogging uh, because it was it was my way of applying things right away because if I could teach things and make them simple to understand in a manner that more people would get well then it it would help my understanding one but two it might help someone else apply that material uh, much faster than they would had they gone through uh, and tried to, to figure that stuff out on their own so that's why my tagline for my website is to is health and performance made ridiculously simple because I think it can be simple yet incredibly effective. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you've been blogging for a while. I remember reading some of your blogs from like the early 2010s on like courses you took or books you took. Yeah. When did you graduate from school? I graduated in 2011 and then I okay. started blogging. I did a residency right after mm -hmm. that um, from 2011, 2012. Then I started blogging or yeah, 2012, 2013 was the residency. And then I started okay. blogging. 2013. And so I've been going since then. I took a little break when I was in the NBA yeah. and I got back into it. And then how'd you get hooked up with Bill or how'd you get exposed to that? Literally, it was me reading T Nation and Men's Health, trying to just make myself uh, healthier and, and better and more fit. And his name came across a few times and it's like, wow, this is cool. He's writing. I like writing. He seems to be very knowledgeable in a lot of different things. I'd like to do that. And so I found a random email of his and I emailed him and asked him if I could be his student. And a couple months later, he got back to me and said I could. And the rest was yeah. history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a, a little bit of a loaded question, but how would you describe like your your methodology or do you have like pillars or if someone said, what kind of PT are you? How would you answer that? I know you've got diversity, but. Do you have some like things you hang your hat on? Yeah, I think so. In in my courses, I have this uh, thing that's got like health and performance in the middle, and what are yeah. the ways that that we can intervene on that in with with the skill sets that we have as clinicians and coaches, and 
movement obviously is in that just because that, I think that's that's the the entry point for when people come to us. They usually come to us because they think movement is going to help them with whatever it is. So I think that's one way we can intervene. I also think that uh, encouraging someone to sleep effectively is another way we can intervene. And that can be done. Uh, we, can, we can go a lot of different ways with that, not just within our profession, but also finding good referral sources to help people with that. Um, I think I should have mentioned this earlier, but the probably the second, if not the most important thing we can do is create uh, social engagement with our people. So yeah. that is one thing that most people are lacking nowadays is they don't have the social network in person that we used to. And so if we can provide some type of social connection with that individual, I think that can be really powerful. Yeah. The other two, go ahead. No, no, you go. Keep going. Uh, the other two things would be nutrition. So can we can we educate our people on, on how to eat effectively for whatever their goals are? And then the last thing would be, uh, you know, which I'm kind of working on fleshing out, but like stress or distress management. That's where I think meditation comes in. I think that's where a lot of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Seth Oberst. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am, trauma, yeah. A lot of the trauma-based work comes in or, or yeah. psychological processes. And really, like, those are the the pillars that I try to improve someone's uh, health and, and wellness on in order to help them reach their goals. Do you ever decide, no, get into any of like the, the vagus nerve stuff that's picking up more press lately, like the paravagal theory or any of that side of things? The, the polyvagal theory? Yeah. Sorry, like, uh, yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah. Porges. Porges. Yeah. Well, I, I used to be really big into neuro stuff when I was a little bit younger in my career, yeah. and I've, I've moved away from that now. If we're talking about polyvagal in, in particular, there's actually a really interesting article by, I think his last name was Grossman, and I can share yeah. it with you. Yeah. Uh, the listeners can see. But he basically disproved polyvagal theory. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well. But, but like with... With all the neurological stuff or anything really, I have to ask if if we think we're doing something, we have to have some way of measuring it. Yes. And we really don't have a good way of measuring a lot of neurological stuff. And that includes autonomics. I think yeah. I think autonomics is a term that gets tossed around like we need to make this person more parasympathetic and they're sympathetically driven. Yeah. But even heart rate variability is not a, a good measure of that. I mean, like, what are you going to measure if someone's parasympathetic, a lack of sweat in their palms? And then yeah. are you going to, you know, collect that? Yeah. So I think like that's, that's not a reasonable measure. What I, what, what excites me more right now is looking at someone's movement capabilities within all their joints. And if, if they have a loss of range of motion in, in any way, shape or form, that, that probably indicates stress to some degree in the system. Yeah. And what I'd like to do is see if we can improve someone's movement options so they have a better ability to even out the workload distribution throughout their bodies. And I think that can lead to a lot of favorable things. Yeah, well said. Um, so we got a little background on how you got to where you're at. Where are you going in the future? Like, where where do you want to be in the next few years? Like, practice set up? I don't know. Is there, like, something you want to get more passionate to or something that's really, like... I feel like every few years, my drive or passion changes on a different topic. You kind of just get fixated on something. But yeah, where do you see yourself going in the future here? 
Yeah, well, I've just accepted a position to be a uh, physical therapist, lead physical therapist, and director of education at Elevate Sports Performance and Healthcare in um, Las Vegas. Awesome. And, yeah, which I'm pretty jazzed up about because they got they have a really all-encompassing setup in terms of really marrying rehabilitation and training. So I I, I believe what they're going to be doing. What I think is going to be really impactful for me learning wise. And what I've seen impactful just playing around a little bit is really diving into sleep, but from a upper airway perspective. So I, last year I, I've been trying to kind of go down the sleep path myself and improving upper airway stuff. So I had a, uh, uh, tongue tie release surgery. Okay. Uh, Suresh Zaghi, he is like the guy, He's in okay. uh, L.A. He's the guy for this. And after I had that surgery done, I was to have myofunctional therapy, which is basically PT for dentistry. So yeah. you do a lot of various tongue exercise and whatnot. And I started playing around with some of the stuff that I learned with my patients. And it seemed yeah. to be really profound with some of the stuff that I was struggling with. Like if I clean up someone's mobility from the neck down, but they still have some neck issues, I would do a few of these myofunctional exercises and get some pretty significant change. And that had me really excited. And then I got even more excited when I took a, a myofunctional class this last December through the, uh, I think it's the Academy of Orofacial Myofunctional Therapy, AOMT. Yep. Um, yeah, really good. And I have a feeling I'm going to be spending a lot more time going down that route. And that's also... Uh, just not for my patients, but also for myself. Um, yeah. Um, you kind of beat me to the punch. That's like the first thing I wanted us to chit chat about is the whole, I don't know, we'll call it cranial cervical slash upper airway. Uh, it's something myself I know I've been getting into more and more. So I want to pick your brain on that. So I think you said it so well, like we address cervical thoracic, we address ribs, we address breathing, but we kind of just ignore what's above it. I think a big thing that we miss is the function of the glottis, and I visualize it almost as the rooftop of the core. If you can't get that glottis to sit appropriately and get that proper closing to build that abdominal pressure, you thus have this like leaky core that can't function. And some keynote structures I know I see there is like the sphenoid plays a big role. I know like the soft palate plays a big role in kind of the upper part of your like jaw. Um, how do you how do you go about assessing this area i mean i know that's a loaded question and hard to talk about via podcast but uh are there some like postural things you look at or like a mobility thing or how do you objectify some of these dysfunctions that you're seeing yeah that's a great question what i think so before we get up to the cranial region let's talk a little bit about the neck yeah because i think i think in the neck in particular we get really jazzed up about the, the incredibly deep structures on the neck, i.e. the deep neck flexors. Yep. Hashtag chin tucks. <laughs> so, but you ever, and it's funny, I, you know, I have to, and again, I have to give credit up for Bill on this. It's like we, yeah. we go to this super deep layer, but then we forget about all these other structures that are more superficial to that. And consider all the muscles that go from the, the neck, the jaw, and the sternum that have a central attachment to the hyoid bone. Yes. And so if you have a loss of dynamic capabilities there, I think that can have a profound impact on many different 
things, ranging from swallowing to neck range of motion to all of this. I mean, to shoulder function. How about the omohyoid, right? Yes. Um, so I will assess the dynamic capabilities there. You can look at that a couple different ways. Uh, Bill has this test that, that he designed called the hyoid position test, where basically if you tip your head back in a cervical extension, you keep your teeth together. And then if you open your mouth and your head tips back much further, uh, you likely have some type of restriction within the hyoid. Huh, makes sense. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You can also look at one's ability to swallow. If they have swallowing difficulties, they may have an inability to elevate the hyoid because the hyoid has to elevate as you swallow. So that's one thing that I look at, aside from cervical rotation, among other cervical yeah. measures. Yeah. If we go up another layer into the mouth, what I've been assessing for more, more is uh, jaw movements. So mm -hmm. do they have mandibular opening within normal limits? Can they truse the jaw in either direction? And then I look at how that is different in terms of the amount that they'll be able to open while keeping the tongue on the roof of their mouth. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of individuals might have a significant amount of mandibular opening, maybe 50, 55 milliliter, or millimeters. Mm -hmm. But then when you do a tongue tip open and you try to open it, many times it might be half that. And that can either be indi indicative of a restriction in the tongue or possibly a tongue tie that requires a surgical procedure. Um, I'm still really in the early phases to um, to to see when I think is appropriate to refer someone to, to that route versus not. Um, so I'll look at tongue flexibility. I'll look at various tongue movements. I'll look at, does one have the ability to differentiate jaw movement from tongue movement, yeah. which a lot of times when people move the tongue, they'll move the jaw simultaneously. Um, I'll, I look to see if someone has a lip tie. So some individuals, the, uh, the, the frenulum where the, the, the lip attaches to on the gums, that can mm -hmm. be really low. And that might be able to restrict someone to close their lips together. Um, have, you found a correlation, have you found a correlation between like breastfeeding or bottle feeding in some of these oral dysfunctions? Because I've noticed that, I mean, my N is very small. But people who maybe bottle fed, they never really get that tongue to the roof of the mouth or that proper like sucking and pressure that you need and that leads to some of that like soft palate yeah mouth dysfunctions have you seen it that in your practice that i think a lot of the people who who i've been experimenting with on this stuff do have those things yeah. um but i also i also see it sometimes in people who maybe were um breastfed and and all of that yeah. stuff as well yeah. and the thing is that i learned in this seminar and actually, if you go into some of Weston Price's literature, some of this likely has some genetic influences that last generation. So, for example, um, they had some pictures of people, I think this is in Weston Price's book, where it's like they had, you know, generation number one, beautiful smiles, really yeah. large facial dimensions. And then they started to introduce uh more grains and, and foods that they weren't accustomed to. And you saw how their teeth began to rot. The, yeah. The, their face changed in the next generation. And then the generation after that, it was even worse. So these may be some things that even if you do everything right, uh, you could still have some problems yeah. in terms of facial development, tongue restrictions, and all of that. Yeah, yeah. What about like CPAPs? Are you seeing 
any good results if you treat some of this stuff out that they might not need to use that as much? Um, I haven't had enough numbers to say that. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Um, how about yourself? Have you have you been ex- exploring with any of that and seeing changes? In- snoring for sure, like just that inability to get air through the nose and that ability to get the tongue on the roof of the mouth. I've seen good changes there, and a lot of it actually, which I want to talk about in a sec, is related to their sleeping posture as well. Um, but yeah, you can get pretty quick changes if you address it correctly and then give them some good home exercises to work on. It's not like you need six months of X treatment to see an effect. And yeah, again, my end is small as well, so I got to keep following it. So tell me some of these uh, like tongue exercises you were doing. Are you like going for certain motions or diagonals or what were you working on? So when, when I'm, when I was doing this stuff and then when I'm also programming it with some of my clients, I have to, you have to look at what the end goal is. And in order to create a nasal breath, you have to be able to seal your lips. So that's step one. You have to be able to get your entire tongue up on the roof of your mouth, not just the tip. So the tip has to be on the rough spot. That's uh, more towards the anterior aspect. But you also have to have the middle, the posterior, and the lateral sides of the tongue. And so many of the exercises focus on the creating the flexibility within the tongue to be able to get your tongue up to into that position. And then once you have that, you need to be able to create a swallow without having too, uh, too much superficial musculature involved. So like one of my favorite exercises that I'll give to people is a smiling swallow. Hmm. So if you ever watch people swallow, and this is interesting when you see it with, with some kids. So if you have a kid who will swirl drinks in their mouth for an extended period of time, and then they try to quit, create a swallow, they may have overactive lip musculature that's contributing to that, and that can negatively impact the swallow. Hmm. Um, so the smile swallow would be keeping your whole tongue up on the roof of your mouth, getting a little bit of water, smiling as wide as you can, and creating a swallow without moving your lips. Hmm. And that's Interesting. a really good terminal exercise. Okay, yeah, that's a great example. Um, so let's pivot a little bit into sleep. So, again, sleep's been picking up some press, you know, there's what, like a, a whoop band these days. There's a lot of different ways people are tracking sleep. Even just your phone will do it. I think people are starting to recognize that it's a an issue. Actually, I was talking to somebody today and, you know, they preach the eight to 10 hours of sleep, which is great. But another approach is, I think, uh, Altus. I don't know if you know Altus, but they're like a performance group and they were preaching more that you should actually try to shoot for 70 hours a week versus just trying to get it per night, giving more of like a long-term sleep goal, which I really thought that was interesting. But where do you start when you're with your clients on educating sleep? That's a big topic, but do you talk about quantity, quality, posture, like environment? Where do you start? Yeah. So I'm always going to assume that with with my clients, I want to give them the minimal effective dose to maximize results, one, and to increase uh, adherence. Uh, a lot of people nowadays work a lot of hours or they have lots of obligations. And many times it might be completely unreasonable to ask them, hey, I need you to sleep an extra hour or two, Josie. So quantity is probably one of the last things I would go after. 
Okay. If we can improve the quality, I think that is a much easier sell. And for me, that's making sure that the they can do everything they can to support a worthwhile sleep environment. That may start with making sure you get sunlight in the morning. Um, that could be making sure you dim electronics or you put on blue blocking glasses, um, yeah. a wide variety of things. In fact, there's a really good um, infographic, and I'm, I'm probably going to be starting to pass this around to clients. I found it um, after I finished my last contract. Yeah. Um, but it's 15 tips and tricks for sleep or for healthy sleep hygiene. And this is this was a study done in 2014. Okay. And it has a lot of like the most up-to-date evidence-based sleep environment things. Um, <laughs> yeah. I also had like one woman who she was she was waking up in the middle of the night consistently for like nine years. And I asked her what the temperature was in her room when she slept and it was 74 degrees. And yeah, that's a big an easy fix for her was, well, why don't you change it to like 60 I think they recommend in the research 60 to 67 degrees. Yeah. So we compromised at 69 and that completely took away the problem. And there wasn't like a complete overhaul in terms of things. Yeah. That changed. Huh? So then do you track sleep in any way? For like, my how are you, clients? Yeah. How are you seeing if it's making a difference? Most of it's uh, qualitative based on yeah. the and the yeah. reason why that is is because a lot of these sleep trackers are not that accurate, especially yeah. if it's anything risk. And and your tell to see if a sleep tracker is truly accurate is to look at the um, the latency in terms of how long it takes you to sleep. If it if it says you fall asleep within one minute, it's probably not <laughs> accurate to measure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the one that I've seen that's probably the best, and even that's not that good, is the Aura Ring, which is yeah. what I use personally. Yeah. Um, and but the problem with that though is the uh, the it can tell when you're asleep but it can't tell when you're awake that accurately, huh? And that can be a problem. Um, yeah. There's research to support that. So it's really tough. Like really, your best bet is to um, is to get some type of sleep study. And I actually have um, a watch pad that I'm going to be using. That's like a at home okay. sleep study that. Huh. A lot of the, um, the the top clinicians who are into sleep, and, and I'm talking like dentists, ENTs, yeah. um, that I know, they seem to really recommend this. And that might be a much more useful indicator than some of these um, yeah. measurable devices. Yeah. Where do you start with like sleep posture? Do you see common errors that if people aren't, whatever, putting pillows in a certain position or having their blankets too tight or... Yeah, what do you see there? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, for sleep posture, you have to take in a few a few considerations. One, most people, especially if they have some upper airway issues, sleeping on their back could be disastrous because the tongue has a tendency to be pushed posteriorly, anyways. Um, so they might be more predisposed to breathing. But if they find that that's more comfortable. You can do a couple different things. Um, there's actually a good research study showing some improvements in, um, I think it, it was either aptic events or it was um, sleep quality by just elevating the head of bed by, by about 10 degrees. Oh, wow. So, so basically you would take like two bricks, put them on the front um, pegs of the bed and uh, sleep that way. Um, I, I haven't had any, I haven't recommended that to any clients because I think there's also another factor that 
we're not considering, and that is how the the shape of the thorax changes depending on what posture you're utilizing. So there was an article done by Takashima et al. in 2017 mm-hmm. that looked at how the rib cage changes shape based on the posture you have. So they compared the supine position to the sideline position. When you are in the supine position, the lateral dimensions of the rib cage increase. Now, what if I have someone, and especially someone who has more of a body that's uh, predisposed to sleep apnea? So, say someone who's a little bit more overweight, overbeast, but just a wider body. Yeah. Shape. Yeah. Well, if I put them in a position that makes them even wider, that could negatively impact respiratory dynamics. So, on the flip side, if you put someone on their side, that shrinks the lateral dimensions and increases the anterior to posterior dimensions. Yeah. So perhaps for some of your wider clients, and that doesn't have to be like an overweight person, it could be a power yeah. Yeah. you might actually encourage them to side sleep huh. and vice versa for some of your skinny minis. Yeah. Yeah. So they no, might like actually that. do better on their back with maybe a head of bed elevation. Yeah. And the thing I'm usually doing with sleep posture is quote unquote, trying to get like neutrality, um, where people will have whatever they're lying on their back with their legs straight, no pillows underneath their knees. They'll have their shoulders in chronic extension. They'll have their cervical spine in extension. They'll have all these like floating joints without any support. And they're basically just steeping, uh, sleeping in this like state of tone and guarding and thus can never breathe and get comfortable. And they're just rolling around all night. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't even think about yeah their body dynamics and how to then adjust posture based on how their their body is situated. That's that's interesting. Then, do you use meditation at all for sleep aid to help like ramp down for sleeping? I surprisingly, it's not something that I recommend much. Yeah, uh, because I think I, I think in terms of low hanging fruits, if I can do things that passively improve yeah. sleep quality. Before I introduce something that requires a, a time demand, um, yeah. I'll do that. But like if I'm giving someone exercises, a lot of my exercises are breathing oriented. Yeah. Many times I'll tell them to do that before bed so it helps them chill. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, when you said, do you do meditation right now? Do you use like an app to do it or how do you do it? Um, well, it's so I've experimented for myself uh, yeah. with I've tried like headspace and I like that for a while. I've tried just, you know, deep breathing. I've tried many different things, but what I found most effective for myself is uh, I spent time working with Seth Oberst Yeah, and he's given me some things to focus on meditation wise. That's really helped because for myself, like I I think a lot of people struggle with meditation because they get a lot of chatter Yeah, and they can't get that to shut down. I'm the exact opposite. I, when I am just like sitting and chilling, I just zone out and I'm, I'm not there. So like yeah. I like I akin prescribing someone meditation would be the same thing as telling someone you need to exercise. Yeah. And yeah. there's just no guidance. Yeah. So it's like, what yeah. is what is the best way for you, Nick, to to meditate? Yeah. Or or what is the best time frame to meditate? Because maybe you have some fatigability in your ability to be present. Yeah. 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 And I think because I'm not I haven't spent enough time diving into that realm 
to see what's the best way to deliver meditation to people that I just yeah. haven't been prescribing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, let me know how your pathway goes there if you find any patterns you, you find successful with people. Um, Will do. What about posture? Like we talked about sleeping posture. Uh, in the, the wellness world, there's a lot of debate with posture because there's evidence that shows that posture doesn't relate to function, which is pretty a hard thing to correlate exactly. Um, there's also, you know, the saying that the only bad posture is a static posture. What are other trendy things right now? Uh, you know, like sitting is the new smoking. I don't know. It's just like the common debate we all have. Um, do you... What's your opinion on posture? Like, I assume you make it part of your practice, but like, how are you assessing it and integrating it into your your care that you're providing? Well, I would have to answer your question with a question. How? Yeah. What are we defining as posture? Yes, that's a good question. We'll call it just like a static standing posture of how. We'll say your thoracic block is sitting over your pelvic block. Mm-hmm. Do you um, look at that kind of stuff? I So I do look at it. It does give me some information. Um, yeah. But it's not necessarily – it's not necessarily a decision maker for me in, yeah. right away. Um, you uh, – I, I, what, what I think is important is you want to make sure that that individual has – the ability, so let's say they are someone with a forward head and kyphotic yeah. and, and all this stuff. You want that person to have the ability to get out of that orientation. And that's where I, I think having movement options, having the ability to move your joints in, a, in all the directions that they should be able to move is incredibly impactful. And that might over time lead to some changes yeah. within someone's posture. And I've seen it with clients and I have clinicians who have seen the same with a static posture. Um, but I think too, if we go back to someone with a forward head, you know, they're assuming this posture and we can, we can argue whether it's good or bad or not, but why don't we ask the question, well, why are they in this, this posture? Perhaps that individual has an upper airway issue, and that's the only way that they can breathe because when you extend your upper cervical spine and you flex the lower cervical, that opens the airway to a degree. Yeah. So perhaps intervening in that regard could be a change in that, or could create a change in that person's posture. Which is where whatever thoracic mobility drills might not make a big change if you don't address that cause. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but I also think, too, we have to appreciate that. Um, individuals do have structural differences that might predispose them to, to looking a certain way. Um, you know, there's there's some good research. There's a good research article by uh, Torres Tamayo that was done in 2018. It's called the Torso Integration Hypothesis. Um, I don't know if you come across that. Yeah. But they basically, I've... yeah, they, they basically looked at um, the lower thorax to ileal relationship of, of people in the Mediterranean sub-Saharan Africa and they're built differently. And uh, so that would make me think that some people might look differently from a postural perspective just because of their structure. And I think we also have to appreciate that. And I think that's where um, a lot of the static posture arguments uh, of people who think that it doesn't matter. It's like, well, we don't really have a, a standard for, yes. it's very N of one. 
Yeah. Um, what about the concept of like asymmetry? Is asymmetry the norm, and do you shoot for symmetry, or do you kind of embrace the asymmetry in our bodies? Well, I look at when I look at this, I look at the asymmetry versus that I believe is changeable versus unchangeable. So, what asymmetry is unchangeable? Well, I think all of the internal anatomy is unchangeable in that regard. There's yeah. there's nothing I can do that can give you two hearts, two livers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And and you likely need some degree of asymmetry to move. That being said, there are also standards of movement that are available at all the joints in our bodies. And well, we may have you know, asymmetrical influences in terms of how we move and, and handed dominance and all of this stuff, we, we still have at the joint locally movements that we should be able to get into. And I think having those movements available allows us to um, have more ways of solving problems, so to speak, uh, movement problems or creating solutions that we need to be able to perform a given task um, I, I think the more of those we have, the better that are within our control. So yeah. um, I think, you know, asymmetry is important um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. But obviously, if you have uh, a loss of movement in certain areas, I think that needs to be addressed. Just out of curiosity, do you do like traditional like muscle strength testing in any form? And do you stress asymmetries there if whatever right glute meat is significantly weaker than left or whatever the scenario may be? I I, I don't. I don't use yeah. any manual muscle testing. Yeah. Uh, most of my assessment is looking at just passive range of motion in, in the body at all the yeah. joints. And then I uh, will look at some dynamic movements. So, like, can someone touch their toes? Can someone squat? And then yeah. what I find most meaningful is looking at the move that is offending to that person. So, if, if I have someone who has pain with uh, front squat. I would like to see what their front squat looks like. Yeah. 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 And um, accordingly. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Uh, so we kind of, we talked about the upper cervical airway and kind of its role on breathing and posture. How do you, I mean, the pelvis and pelvic floor makes sense, but how do you educate your patients on the role of your pelvis and breathing and posture and function? Like, what's your old spiel there? Because that's a very complex area that, and the average Joe, you're not going to tell them how the coccyx is influencing your pelvic floor tension or whatever the scenario may be. You mean you don't? No. (laughs) (laughs) So let me tell you about your coccyx. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... What, what I found, at least with my clientele, is most of them don't really care to know much about the nitty-gritty unless they're in the field yeah. or they're near the field. So basically what I tell them, and I get pretty much, pretty much everyone a similar version of the, the spiel is I, I kind of talk about the, the concept of movement options. And I'll say, so your whole body is connected. It moves together as one piece, one cohesive unit. Most people get that. And if they don't get that, you might actually give them an example. So let's say it it hurts when it hurts their knee when they go up the stairs. So, well, you know, Sally, you you have to obviously bend and straighten your knee as you go up and down the stairs, but you see how your hip also has to move, how you gotta swing your arms to be able to go up and down the stairs. So 
your body works in a coordinated fashion to be able to complete the tasks that are problematic. Many times, for whatever reason, and we don't know the reasons, so I'm very upfront about that. Yeah. yeah. The body, the body might lose its ability to move in certain directions, and that might increase pressure, strain, or tension in certain areas, and that could be wherever you hurt. If we can improve your body's ability to move in all directions, my thought is that that will even out the workload distribution throughout your body and make task X much yeah. more comfortable for you. And that's really about as far as I get into it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so then when we're getting on the practical side of things, I know this is a struggle. I always have. You only have so much time with your clients and patients. How do you, how do you integrate, let's say, breathing – We'll say, I don't know, posture, corrective stuff into someone maybe that you're doing more of the strength and conditioning. Are you doing it as like movement prep work? Are you doing it as active rest? Are you educating them and making it their homework? But again, you only have so much time. How do you integrate all this really important, we'll call it corrective from exercise to manual, but also making sure that they have the functional strength to squat, push, pull, carry, hinge, all that stuff. Yeah. So with with that, uh, well, I'm very lucky in the sense that a lot of the people when they come to see me, especially if I'm working with them online either in yeah. a training or a movement yeah. movement perspective, they yeah. kind of know what to expect. But let's say, like in my last job, I had a lot of people who weren't that wasn't the case, and they didn't need to yeah. get stronger and all that. Yeah. I try to to let the people know very early on that. This is to allow you to build context of a certain way I want you to move that you're going to be using at much higher intensities. So, for example, there's one breathing exercise I give people where they're lying on their back, their feet are against the wall, so hips and knees will be at 90 degrees. Yeah. And I teach them how to, to posteriorly tilt and breathe in that position. Yeah. And, well, if you if you take them and you tip them upside down or you tip them so their feet are now on the ground – well, that looks like uh, uh, near the, the bottom of their squat. And yeah. so I'll say, hey, so-and-so, remember that thing you did on your back? And now we're teaching them the squat. This is basically the exact same thing. So I need you to do that same tuck. I need you to do that yeah. same with your rib cage. And it's really all the, all the exercises that I would prescribe from a, a strength and conditioning perspective are just iterations of some of those earlier things that we taught. I, I akin it to learning a musical instrument. You yeah. you may want to play Stairway to Heaven on your guitar <laughs> right from the get-go, but if you can't do Mary Had a Little Lamb, like you're lost. So yeah. And, and the nice thing about musical instruments is there's a built-in feedback loop letting you know that you are not doing this right because you, yeah. you sound like trash. But yeah. we don't necessarily have that movement-wise because you can still move the bar yeah. And look awful and have it not be a desirable thing for your body. Um, so I think creating in those feedback loops for people, and that could be, I needed you to feel these particular muscles. I need you to be able to get your body into this position. I think that's a way that we can kind of make that more like it's learning a skill than it is building these physiological qualities, because I really think that is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really well said. Cause one of the common complaints I'll hear people have with like PRI work is oh, I just put them on their back and I put their feet on the wall and I have them breathe into a balloon and then that's all I have them do. And it doesn't have any sort of carryover, but I think it all goes into context. Yeah. You got to start at ground level and then 
be smart enough to progress into more weight-bearing, functional, dynamic positions. When someone is quote-unquote efficient, do you then have them maintain it then as part of their pre-workout or their like before bed routine or like what's your maintenance program looking like then? So are you saying if, if like I have someone who they've, they've done this stuff, they do it really well and yeah. like they're on more of the high intensity things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I usually will buy the, if I'm talking about a rehab on the rehab yeah. side of things, yeah. if, if I have someone who is, um, let's say their, their physical activity is going to be on a walking program. Um, that might be what I recommend at the tail end of things. I usually will titrate the exercises down. And so I'll say like, if they had two moves that they were working on, um, Hey, I want you to keep up with these moves twice a week or two times a day for a month, then once a day. And then, you know, two times a week then as needed. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't, I expect by the end, these should be as needed tools that they can use if they ever run into trouble. But if I have someone who's my training client, then it's just a matter of giving them progressively more challenging tasks to be able to maintain the positions in. And then you yeah. really don't have to do the the lower intensity drills, which are really there to build context. It's, you know, if, if you do it as anything, maybe it's like as your cool down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a, a light bulb that hit off in my head, I don't know, in the last few years is like, why why do we why do we discharge people? Why are we forced to discharge people? We should be part of their long-term wellness plan for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I'm not going to be seeing you as often as we were, but whatever. They have a desk job. They have a stressful life. Why not come back in six months as more of a maintenance thing than wait until they're in so much pain that they have to come back because they can't do the activities they like? And that's, I guess, part of the insurance world that we all live in, but... I think an important point to make to patients, particularly when you're discharging them, is this isn't a, a right now thing. This is a for the foreseeable future. Um, yeah. For sure. Well, and so, I think, too, like we need to be stewards to encourage our patients to be active. Yeah. It's like you can't, you you know, if you were a sedentary individual before you came into PT um, and you leave a sedentary individual you're you're probably going to be back in the system in some way, shape, or form. So how can we? I mean, I think that behooves us as clinicians to how can we inspire and encourage our our patients, which we won't see forever, to 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 be more physically active. And that's where a lot of times my my home exercise prescription by the end will be: I need you to get X amount of steps in a given day if they're tracking, yeah. or I need you to go walk. 10 minutes a day or something like that, because I think over the long haul, that would be much more impactful for them. And that's why I think there's a lot of value to the practices that are set up within a, a gym or have some sort of wellness fitness component to it. Cause it just seamlessly integrates into what you need to be educating them on doing anyway. Um, for sure. So last question that I ask everybody, theme of the podcast is optimizing your capacity. What do you, what are you doing to improve yourself or optimizing yourself in 2020? from career to maybe a fitness thing or maybe some books you're trying to get on top of? What, what are you working on? Well, I think this year is the year I'm going to try to really maximize my upper airway. That's the, uh, yeah. that's yeah. the big dog. So I'm, I'm going to be doing this sleep study. I'm going to be meeting yeah. with a dentist, um, in, 
I think it's next next week, um, just yeah. to see what type of appliances or things I might need to do to to maximize that. And so that's probably going to be the big thing to improve myself over the next uh, couple of years, because if I can improve my sleep quality, I think that's going to trickle down to improving a lot of different areas. Um, in terms of learning, I, I'm really going to dive into this upper airway stuff. Yeah. I think this year, refining some of the stuff that I'm, you know, that I currently teach from the, the neck down. Um, and then I'm also trying to learn a bit more on the business side of things because I'm going to be with my next position. I'm going to be spending a bit more time doing a, some of that yeah. as well. Um, and, and those are really kind of the big things that I, I want to focus on right now. Do you have a, a reference you recommend if someone wants to maybe get some more context on biomechanics or anatomy of upper airway stuff? Is there a book or someone to follow or something like that? Uh, I, I haven't, I don't have a good book. But yeah. a course would be the the intro oh, yeah. um, course by AOMT. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I think that that's it was really well done. It in it was I haven't been to many courses lately where it's like wow I need to really integrate a lot of stuff from this and yeah. that was where it was. Um, so I strongly recommend checking them out. That's a, they have a lot of good information on on myofunctional therapy and upper airway. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And then if someone wants to. Get a hold of you, follow you. What? How can we track what you're up to? Awesome. Uh, best bet is to go to zackcouples.com. That's Z-A-C-C-U-P-P-L-E-S. Um, yeah. I. That's where. That's basically my hub. I produce a lot of content out there. It's where I have my my podcast. Um, it's where you can get access to uh, some services I offer: movement consultations, training, yeah. mentoring. Um, I offer a seminar that I teach, a two-day seminar called Human Matrix. <laughs> you know, it, we don't we don't talk as much about some of the upper airway stuff, but yeah. some of those things where we talked about uh, the sleep position and that influencing rib cage dimensions. Well, mm. I basically take things like that. But now let's look at it from a movement perspective or how do we take someone who has a limitation in movement options and restore those options and then teach them to maintain their movement capabilities under load. You'll learn how to do that at the seminar. Yeah, um, that's awesome. So I got to be, I got to get there. Um, I would love to have you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, sweet. Well, I know you got a lot going on. appreciate you taking the time and uh, yeah, have a good rest of your day. You too, Nick. Thank you for your time. Yeah. This was fun. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Our goal is to help individuals like you learn practical knowledge you can apply today. If you want more information about how you can improve your capacity, visit our website at capacitypt.com. We have tons of info, including blogs, exercise videos, eBooks, and more. We're soon to offer services such as mentorship for clinicians and trainers, as well as online rehab and training. Stay tuned. If you liked this episode, it would mean the world to us to leave a review. Again, our goal is to help and influence as many people as possible, and the best way to do that is through word of mouth. Leave us a review, tell your friends about it, shoot us an email with your feedback. We wish everybody the best. Expand your capacity.